ดมนเมฆผ่าลอยพ้นฝนพรังฝนโปรยเย็นช่ำสาดพรำเป็นฝอยลอยไปฝนจนสั่งฟ้ารำไปหนาวเวียนมาใหม่อกคงวันไว้สง่า Welcome to Extended Clip Episode 42 I'm one of your hosts Eddie April I'm Malcolm Bomb I'm JT White and we're back In the Discord, in the quarantine zone, we're hanging out in the secret voice channel while you guys are hanging out in the text channel. We're becoming an interactive podcast in this age of Corona, aren't we? Yeah, I feel like I've lost my physical form completely now, and I'm only a digital voice in the ether. And uh, I think it's better this way. Yeah, I'm gonna upload myself, my complete self, to the internet. I already feel really weak, very vitamin. So, and I'm not. It's yeah. not. It's not the pandemic. It's just I'm. It's just I'm taking poor care of myself, and I'm withering. Yeah, my tiny, tiny penis doesn't matter when I'm just a digital consciousness. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's that's the main reason. <clears throat> don't don't have to worry about that anymore. You know, I'll just inst- I'll install I'll install myself a big penis. Exe crack it. Got to make sure to download the crack too, or else it won't. Uh, well, we're here today to talk about uh, Tears of the Black Tiger, the 2000 film by Wizit Sasanatieng, and Seven Men from Now, the 1956 film by Bud Bedeker. Now, JT programmed this double feature for us. Why don't you tell us a little bit about why you made your selection? Um, well, the initial selection uh, was just like shooting from the hip like cowboys do. Uh, with two westerns that I had just uh, had on my hard drive for like a while now. Uh, Tears of the Black Tiger. Um, I had, I forget like where uh, I got it, but I got it when I was like in high school. Um, And it just seemed like this weird thing that I was always curious about, but never made the plunge on. And seven Seven Men From Now, I had when I've been like going through all the Butker Scott westerns recently, and I figured that was a simple enough connection. But also now, I mean, because I posted True Grit Live, I feel like it's like it's it's a ploy for me to uh, be self promotional. <laughs> but even beyond that, they have the Cuck Link, uh, which we'll uh, get more into uh, when we discuss both these movies. Some hidden messages uh, sneaked yeah. into these movies about uh, marital relations. If you yeah. if you could read between the lines. Between these films and the film of uh, JT, you know, for this Corona quarantine, we're going full on cuck cowboy mode. <laughs> Pony up. Yeah. Fuck my wife, little doggy. <laughs> <Jesus>. <laughs> Uh, so Tears of the Black Tiger is a uh, it's a Thai film from 2000, and it's kind of a lot of things on top of being something of a Western. You know, it's an action film, a melodrama, kind of a, a metatextual uh, comedy at certain points with a lot of self-referential humor. And uh... Yeah, so, I mean, going into it, I knew next to nothing other than that it was like action-adventure Western and like melodrama. Um, reflecting on like uh, Thai films of that of I think uh, 
or like earlier eras but it's this weird sort of it like parts of it are like uh western and then other it's like cirque style melodrama um but you like you were saying but the movie opens with our female lead uh rumpui uh who is mourning the loss of her like she's waiting for her lover dumb who never shows he's off in a cowboy battle uh somewhere and it the film sort of splits from there and follows like dumb's journey to try and uh reconnect with her when she like winds up because she's it's a classic sort of uh two sides of the tracks romance where she's uh, from the wealthy elite he's just some poor crumb bum uh and sort of their like how they ultimately reconnect uh in a very tragic way yeah and that like opening where she's waiting for him while he's doing a you know heroic cowboy action scene uh kind of sums up what you're gonna get tonally uh for the rest of the movie and i think that's why it's a really good way to open the film where you know you get these really expressive camera movements while she's just alone uh at their you know meeting point in this like open field and then you also get this extremely you know stylistic and very heavy on physical gore uh or practical gore shootout that also has you know the self-referential comedic element of it where he you know pulls this ricochet trick shot off and then there's a title card that essentially says if you missed it, we're going to show you it again. And it shows the trick shot again from, you know, several different angles. Yeah, it's got like a weird like Looney Tunes element to it in that respect in sort of how it like plays things up and really heightens things with the formal list aspects of it, which was something at first when I was like getting into the film, I was a little bit weary of because I feel like it's very easy to like fuck up and lean too heavily into like stylistic flair um, and feel sort of hollow. But I feel like it weaves a bunch of different styles together in a very uh, effective and beautiful way. And a lot of them are from like, I mean, Looney Tunes again fits in sort of like with the, 40s 50s sort of vibe of the whole movie it does a good job of towing the line especially and you know in its stylistic aspects because you know this is it is an exercise in style it is an exercise in you know pastiche and uh even like an exercise exercise in parody at parts but like i feel like it never goes in too heavy heavily on one of those things and kind of you know mixes them together to where you know it does like uh kind of make fun of uh, certain aspects of, you know, uh, Thai movies that I, I frankly haven't seen. But it, you could still see it has a great respect for all that stuff, too. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of the nostalgia for older movies translates across different film cultures. Obviously, I don't know the specifics of, you know, the specifics of Thai melodrama or Thai, you know, westerns. But I understand the quality of the, you know, degraded kind of uh, doopy taped from a bad uh, film print version of watching an old movie. And, you know, there's a couple parts of this movie that have that like heavy film grain over it to, you know, showcase it as something that you remember watching an old film. And it's just that sense of. I guess the sense of nostalgia that it has in the way that it approaches like that meta aspect of looking back at all of this history of cinema 
that makes it i don't know it's like a pretty warm experience in that regard yeah i to speak to um sort of the general nostalgia and reflecting back in the past through like cinema's past especially in one moment that sticks out is the little montage uh sequence before it's rumpooey and dumbs like their early romance um when they're uh like children together um and sort of it has that silent movie sort of aesthetic there um in the flashback oh yeah there's a great split screen within that where it's both of their faces in close-ups you know using the like iris kind of borders of silent film style and yeah there's like some of the more breathtaking shots uh in this film kind of are in these kind of gimmickish segments yeah the 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 movie has like a lot of tricks you know keeps it entertaining and you know it does it does a lot with the set design and like landscape and it has a very distinct uh sense of color that it uses very well to create mood and you know you always love seeing that type of stuff in movies yeah i think the mood is the one thing or like the tone i guess is the one thing that really unifies this movie because it has so many stylistic uh tricks up its sleeve that it's it's kind of hard to pin down what exactly its stylistic approach is, you know? It's like changing every scene pretty much, but it all stays true to the tone that's kind of established in that opening segment where it intercuts those two scenes of the main characters. Yeah, so after sort of that initial set piece where it's a Rumpui reminiscing uh, about him we sort of see that dumb is paired with another cowboy. Is it what Messwan? Is that how you'd say that? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, why not? We're I've been, gonna we're, say... we're gonna fuck up a lot of pronunciations. Yeah. So I'm just gonna lean heavily into it. But it's dumb and Messwan are working for a cowboy um, named Phi, and his main thing is just like don't fuck with him. No snitches classic shit real outlaw type and in it uh dumb become is like known as like a black the black tiger uh is sort of his like cowboy nickname yeah and like his cowboy persona you know kind of fits in with all these guys in this weird eccentric gang of new uh cowboy wannabes uh you know out of time kind of and yeah, it's really interesting to see them go up against the cops who are just looking like the army. And, you know, there's like this giant action set piece in kind of the middle of the movie where that big gang is being taken on by, you know, the police. And it just looks like a scene out of like a war movie, pretty much. But with cowboys. Yeah, that scene is fantastic. Yeah. What, I, one thing I like about that sequence is that um, the artillery that each you know side has, the weaponry... Uh, increases with size as the battle goes along till it climaxes with it being ended by a rocket launcher yeah you know we love 2a we love the weapons oh my god yeah uh <laughs> if there's anything in extended clip would ever endorse it's the use of firearms in this picture and i i think like the mm -hmm. two i love how they're able to plant that rocket launcher there in that scene and then later bring it back again just the logic of action movies is perfectly sound right there. Um, so the film, you know, it shows the flashback that you mentioned where they're kids. And then it shows another point in time 
where you know he's in college and gets in another fight most of his life is just being in love and then having violent spurts defending women it's almost like episode two and three anakin skywalker it's i one of the lines uh that she says when she's young is uh she's asking him to do everything she says it's just the classic just like i don't know simp and hard in this movie yeah it's that's the one lesson i came away with is you don't like never do anything for a woman (laughs) yeah well that's that's what he learned when he's in college he goes for balsa he recognizes her in the wild and it's like no i'm someone else you do not recognize me (laughs) love is too too dangerous (laughs) yeah wait you fucking know me my name is on your harmonica (laughs) (laughs) yeah the harmonica oh my goodness the there's so many things like that like every single flashback shows something uh, like the origin of something that you just watched in a scene a few minutes earlier, uh, like the harmonica and stuff like that. And I think it's really good. Just like, I don't know. It's like a very maximal melodrama in that regard, but it never really goes too over the top for me. No. Yeah. And like, I, I enjoy that scene where we see our protagonist, the Dama playing the harmonica and he's like on some sort of like artificial set with like a, a paint, like a painting as the background. I loved that. So, oh my god. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the like the, the amount of things that this movie tries out is like is very impressive, and the way the way it still somehow meshes is kind of like where the enjoyment is being taken place. Yeah, I feel like I don't know. You know, partway through, I started thinking that maybe the like constant switches in style and like attention more to uh you know style than the narrative kind of undercut the melodrama because it is like quite a big Mm -hmm. you know melodrama and i think there might be something to that like i didn't fully buy into the big uh climactic finale of the melodrama you know and i think it may have been because of you know so many different styles being tried out here pushed to their you know maximum limits it kind of undercuts the sincerity that's necessary for melodrama well yeah i was just gonna say like i feel like it pulls it off and like you know all the styles somehow come together but it's not like perfect some of it still is rough i mean not rough but just doesn't exactly hit as you'd like it to Mm -hmm. and i feel like this movie is maybe a little long for its own good yeah drags on a little bit towards the especially the back half and there's just a couple there's maybe a step or two that the narrative takes that i don't exactly buy wholesale or or that or or even that interested in like kind of like his partner betraying him or whatever Uh uh-huh oh yeah the whole gang betraying him essentially yeah that wasn't for some reason that didn't really register with me as much as the other parts of the movie did yeah and it ends uh, with him repeating a quote that he had said while he was like wooing her in their romantic scene on the beach where he says that essentially like that life is a long series of miseries or something like that. And, you know, you got to uh, steal my lines. Yeah, exactly. You got to go for the, <laughs> got to go for those happy moments, uh, which, you know, the second half of it doesn't apply to cool guys that we've covered, like the lead character from The Devil Probably. Uh, he would agree with the first half of that, but he, you know, I, as an ultimate cool guy of cinema like myself, the second half doesn't really ring as true. <laughs> like Lee yeah, Marvin yeah. in Seven Men from now. Yeah, exactly. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I think I definitely am more in line with his alpha presence. 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, well, dumb is, I mean, to get to the cuckoldry of it all, because I definitely feel like it loses some steam there in the second, or like the middle to the end of the second half for me. I mean, I like the finale, and I feel like that, like, it stylistically picks up a lot and does mm-hmm. um, some really cool things. Uh, but because I do like the scene where Dumb and his partner take that sort of, like, blood oath and yeah. are, like, drinking and sort of spitting up blood. And that, like, that sets up something compelling, but I, they don't, those plots peter out to some extent. And it does, like, for, I mean, I think there are two different cuts of this. There's one that originally aired, but then for U.S. import, I think they trimmed out maybe like eight minutes i'm not sure which version i like was able to download but um it it does get a little long i feel like this could have been uh tighter and then that would have made them be able to like stick the landing a lot more because i like um i don't know when dumb uh lets his uh his ex-lover's current fiance uh captain cumjorn who is uh, with the law, let him go. And I like sort of seeing that play out, but it's just bogged down uh, by too much where I feel like it's, it doesn't come off as totally sincere, which I feel like is something, I don't know, you absolutely need for the melodrama to work. But I mean, that being said, it's still really fun. Yeah. No, I was going to say like the, the genre element of it on a technical level is pretty astounding. You know, I, I love the gore in this movie and all of the shootouts are so well staged and shot. And like the melodrama too is really stylishly shot. But as I said, yeah, the tone doesn't completely meld with melodrama and despite uh, how much I admire the kind of grab bag of uh, stylistic approaches I kind of wish there was something more unifying about it but I do think that yeah that last finale which takes place at the the wedding where our hero is being cuckolded by the ceremony the tragedy of it doesn't like really hit on an emotional level at all but it's really impressive to look at and like fun to watch for that reason and that kind of sums up the whole film like it's an admirable tone it's just one that doesn't really work for the narrative in my opinion even though i had a pretty good time watching it yeah yeah a whole lot of fun yeah i mean i think i think its biggest strength is it is like as a style of rap maybe not as like a cohesive narrative but i mean that's hey that's valuable that's some good stuff right there even if it doesn't completely uh you know connect three and a half bullet flick for me yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna say the same three and a half bullets uh yeah really don't have any more thoughts on my mind uh, i'm also gonna toss up three and a half bullets Cha-ching. right through the fucking teeth <laughs> blam 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 cartoon style um i don't know yeah i feel like we've said all that i feel about the movie it's a fun time but missing like a lot to like truly push it into like being a masterpiece yeah um but yeah worth the download speaking of sense as that was the sixth sense of course there is one really great scene where someone is shot through a, a coin that has a real a small hole in it and that little sequence like there's a cut from the bullet going through the hole of the coin to the person's brain 
inside their head that's about to be shot and that shot only lasts you know a quarter of a second or something but in that quick succession of cuts is so impactful and yeah uh good time with the movies yeah that and the way that transitions from the coin talk too oh yeah masterful stuff um i'm gonna buy a gun before they close all the stores down (laughs) they already did because of this movie (laughs) burbank's still open they reopened it back oh really damn yeah yeah because i know i think la city ruled guns as inessential activity or whatever but yeah, you my just book. keep practicing trick shots in yeah. your own apartment. <laughs> As Dave Grohl once sick. said with the Foo Fighters, it's times like these you learn to live again. Wise <laughs> uh, words. We'll be right back to talk about uh, Seven Men from Now. <laughs> We'll go back to extended clip. Uh, before we get into our Bud Bedecker B movie, uh, anything else you've seen in your quarantine lockdown period, either of you, that you want to bring to the table? Yeah, yeah. I saw a little movie called L, E-L, by Louis Boonwell. It was really good. And I haven't seen most of his um movies that aren't like huge hits like i've seen you know the surrealist works which are great i'm a fan of those but uh, i haven't really checked out his 50 stuff and this was you know just equally as good probably is going to rock it up there one of my favorites by him um it's about this uh this rich guy francisco who's a very well-liked member of the community and uh has strict principles and he steals this guy's wife from him and you know they become married and the wife realizes that being married to this guy is, you know, a secret hell. Like he's a, he's a dangerously neurotic, you know, thinking that, you know, she's cheating on him to the point where, you know, he'll uh, beat her, stuff like that. And it just has a, there's, there's such a sharp wit to this movie, you know, of deconstructing this, this rich principled guy who behind doors, is, you know, a total psychopath to the people closest to him. And uh, it's, you know, it's real subtle in that way, but the, but hey, some of the laughs are big. Um, (laughs) It's, you know, it made me want to check out some of his more earlier work. I saw uh, someone on Letterboxd, Felipe Furtado, compare it to an early Hong Sang Soo movie. (laughs) I think, I think, I think it's an apt comparison. I think it's an apt comparison. Yeah, no, he doesn't usually pull the uh, Elricisms. I think if he's making a comparison like that, it's usually worthwhile. Yeah, yeah. Great guy. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, no. Extended clip fully endorses the letterboxed uh, entries and blog posts of Felipe Furtado. Uh, JT, what about you? Just last night, I watched another film uh, by our favorite Clint Eastwood. It was 1993's A Perfect World. And I was curious because, like, I'm not a really big Costner guy, but I felt like if anyone was going to do him justice, it would be Clint. And the logline alone of a kidnapped boy striking up a friendship with his captor um, as he's on the run from the law um, against a U.S. Marshal played by Clint um, was enough to pull me in. Like, going into the flick... I wasn't sure, like, the stakes of this kidnapped kid. And I was like, 
is there going to be a weird like like is he gonna is he gonna try and is Cosner trying to diddle this kid was really <laughs> something <laughs> I was like how are they gonna make a friendship out of that but it's a much more earnest like it's a period piece I think like either the like 50s or, or no it's the 60s because there there's a great bit where like uh it's set in texas and um i think clint is technically a texas ranger or something uh but there are there's trying to reallocate like police equipment for uh kennedy coming to texas and like the eye roll that clint delivers uh for kennedy is so fucking good um (laughs) And uh, I don't know, it has, for me, it works really well for a lot of the reasons that, like, late Eric Clint uh, does well is because Cosner is on, like, a prison break, uh, and he just picks up uh, the kid after, like, a botched sort of robbery that happens when he and this other criminal that escape, like, sort of fucks up, and they wind up, like, bringing the kid along. Eventually, Cosner ditches uh, and murders uh the other criminal pretty early on and it's just it gets to the meat of just really him and the kid and they're both sort of these like misfits like both don't really know their dads kind of a thing and it's really fun like sort of hanging out in that sense like the seeds of what's to come with the laid-back pacing of like real late clint here there's i mean i posted about it in my letterboxd review but there's a great moment where like the kid he steals a Casper costume and he wants to change into it, and then he gets really embarrassed about like doing it in front of Costner. And Costner is like, like, what? Like, why are you embarrassed? And he's like, your your pecker's too small. <laughs> <laughs> and he very sheepishly admits, yes, it is. Oh. And he's like, he's like, other boys told me. And uh, Cosner's like, come on, let me take a look. Oh. <laughs> and, he, and he's like, no, it's not, it's not small. And just like, it, oh, that's it's, sweet. Uh, it's a fucking, I mean, yeah, no, it's like, I don't know, it is funny for just like a little kid being worried about his tiny little pick. But um, it's got a very, huge hog like, <laughs> It's a great moment of like, I don't know, the paternal intimacy that takes place between the two because the kid is like a sheltered boy and he gets to experience some like more i don't know like a a more aggressive lifestyle but also like face is faced with like the violence that sort of happens with crime and clint is also to speak to his subplot a little bit he's paired with laura dern uh and it's so great it's like the classic sort of butting of heads where she's like a federal agent coming in and he is like the texas marshal um and uh, ultimately come together at the end but uh it's a real good one i would totally recommend it uh but eddie what what have you been viewing recently well first i want to say that i definitely want to watch a perfect world that sounds so fucking good uh everything i've read about it suggests that it will be a top tier clint so i'm looking forward to that but i've watched uh quite a bit in this week since we've last recorded uh checked out some early ferrara shorts i watched one that's like 30 minutes long called this could be love or sorry could this be love from 1973 so the only thing he has before this are two like homemade amateur shorts and the only thing he has after this before the driller killer is his hardcore pornography nine lives of a wet pussy 
So if you read this, two carefree women have a fun day out, pick up a prostitute, and take her to a party hosted by one's husband. You would assume this would, like, at least be softcore porn, but it's not. It's just kind of like a hangout movie. And um, it was okay, I guess. <laughs> uh, I'll just say Ferrari definitely got better as he as he went as a filmmaker, you know, until you get to the 90s. Then you just have an all-timer on your hands. But I also watched Which Way to the Front, which is a Jerry Lewis, you know, the entryway to his late period. This is the film where he plays a billionaire, uh, the richest man in America, or one of the richest men in America, and is deferred from the military so he starts his own private army to uh, clean up in world war ii in the ways that the united states army was failing and it's a very strange movie and there's a lot of like iconography of like american flag all of this almost like a, a late clint eastwood application of the american flag as iconography within the frame but yeah, they just have these like goofy, fantastic four looking outfits. Uh, I think they're orange out- military outfits. The like eight people that are in his little private army. And uh, yeah, it's a it's a funny, dumb Jerry Lewis movie where he's just doing dumb voices and people are making silly faces. And it's a it's a good time. And it's as well directed as any comedy movie you'll ever see, because it's directed by the god Jerry Lewis. Hell yeah. Anytime you're ready, Mr. Greer. Ha! Oh! Ha! Get up! Get up there! Come on, jump! Ha! 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 Get up! Get up there! Ha! Ha! Get up! Get up there! Seven Men From Now is the first film that Bud Bedecker uh, and and Randolph Scott made in their cycle of, of westerns that are, you know, low budget, real short kind of B-movie westerns that are all pretty much classics. And I'm very glad, JT, that you brought this one to the podcast. Yeah, oddly enough, this is the last of the Bud Bedecker. Like, I'd seen all of the Bud Bedecker-Scott collabs before, except this one. So this is a great um, incentive to finish it off. And I feel like this one being the first of them, I don't know. It, it shows what's to come. I think all of these Bedecker and Randolph-Scott westerns, to me, feel like they could be... Um, early like television drama yeah like, where it's like just like almost like 60 minutes long like bare bones sticks to a plot but it's such a rich and mature handling of the material and just like the way uh the characters are constructed the setting of how it's shot it's just comes together and it's small stories told on such a like large scale and like effective manner yeah and speaking of television it almost feels like that first scene where randolph scott goes into that cave on the rainy night where he walks in there without a horse and shoots those two guys and takes their horses that feels like you know a cold open from like a a dramatic tv show but obviously b westerns are much better than Uh television drama so we probably uh best not make the comparison (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, respect to the short movie. I mean, that's what I, I love about. We see Randolph Scott uh, do that, right? Merc those two motherfuckers, and that's that's our moral compass. That's our moral compass throughout the film. This is the best man there is in the West. Yeah, because uh, you know, you thought that behavior was bad. Some of those things these other boys are up to, you know, not so savory. <laughs> no, it's like it's a really fucked up movie, as are like so many of the you know, late Westerns where the morality is really coming into question. And like, uh, I also watched this one pretty late. I watched, I think all of the other, maybe all but one of the other, uh, Bedecker Scott Westerns. I started with ride lonesome, which was the last one. And by that point, it's like so bare bones and everything has almost like created a double meaning just these giant yeah. proclamations about the west and manlyhood that they're making yeah in the andre bazan like uh cahier du cinema review he in terms of his morality like he says we become attached no less to the characters on the contrary their existence is all the fuller by owing them nothing to the incertitudes and ambiguities of psychology and when at the end of the film randolph scott and lee marvin find themselves face to face the heartrending to which we know ourselves condemned is moving and beautiful like tragedy and that's the thing it's like it establishes randolph scott's character as the moral compass as you know a guy who's just not even the sheriff anymore just basically a vigilante ex-cop killing people uh and yet you spend so much time with him and it's so established within this western milieu that you find yourself attached to him for the next 60 minutes until the end when you're reminded where his place is. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it kind of goes to the classic, you know, way of thinking of, you know, a policeman or, you know, these types like, well, you know, these bad guys are out here doing bad things. So for the good guy to win, they have to be a little bit bad. Yeah. That's exactly. a, that's a, something you see in Westerns a lot. Yeah. And it's kind of like the basis of just like crime fiction in general. I feel like true. And, that's what most of these Bedecker films are. They just take these very bare bones stories with very uh, essential but kind of basic themes and they just let every moving part of the film speak for itself kind of and how you want to apply it to those bigger themes. You were saying Ride Lonesome and you know it definitely is from what I remember but this one has an emptiness to it too until maybe like the uh, one of the more final set pieces where they're in the, the town, but like all the saloons and like things that they visit, there's no one there. Like it's, yeah. it's, it's really just them in the West, them being engulfed by like the vastness of it all, the way a uh, Butterker shoots it. Yeah. That's something you'll read about Bedeker. And then obviously you'll see when you watch his films is the way that like he shoots these Western landscapes, make it feel abstracted the way that he dwarfs these characters and these giant, landscapes of sand and rocks yeah i mean that's great i mean some of the emotional beats rely on that technique too which is great like you'll get you know some emotional through line delivered by a distant shot of a man staring out to the di staring out into the distance you know about the size of an ant yeah so the essential plot to this uh particular film in the series is that uh, Randolph Scott's character, uh, ex-Sheriff Stride, he uh, he loses his wife to a, a holdup that turned into a shooting. And the thieves with the money are running away from town. 
and he had previously lost uh, the election, so he's no longer the sheriff. And uh, he's trying to chase the seven men down, and uh, he, along the way, meets up with a couple, the Greer couple, who are pulling a wagon, and he helps them get it through some mud, and he talks to them while they're bathing the horses in a really wonderful scene uh, where the wife, I think, is... is no, she's singing. Yeah, she's yeah. singing. It's a when really, she's yeah, it's a it's a really great scene. That sure is wild country. Well, I like wild things. I guess that's why I've never been able to settle down to one job. It'll be different this time, though. <laughs> if we ever make it, I never knew any place could be so far. Yeah, they say there's no end to what a good salesman can make out there. Up with the shipping trade and all. Did you ever hear that, Mr. Stride? Yes, yes, I have. Oh, my God. It's ama- It's so, like, subtly erotic how Randolph Scott kind of gets goes for a glimpse and really nothing more. Yeah. Um, I, I, that's what I like about the Randolph Scott westerns for being so compressed and tight, like 70, minute, like 70 minutes-ish for each of them. There are still these little, like, moments of air like that that are slow and contemplative. Like it, like takes like it takes its time with the seventy minutes, and we get those like little beautiful moments, like her singing off screen, and just more like subtle elements of like character conveyed that way. No, another scene that kind of speaks to that what you were talking about, JT, is you know kind of the strange intimacy you get from the scene where Randolph Scott is sleeping under the wagon with uh, Annie. Um, the man's wife who, you know, obviously Randolph Scott and Annie have a, a little something brewing together. And, you know, that scene has, you know, just enough silence and enough dead air to where, you know, it feels impactful. I think one, another really wonderful scene is like right after, uh, what we just discussed where, uh, you know, the wife of the Greer couple is singing, uh, they pull the wagon and the horses through some more water. And just like the time that Bedeker takes out, even in this hyper compressed and like streamlined plot, the time he takes to just show just regular processes of like transportation in the West is phenomenal whether it's them crossing through water or just going through you know long uh strands of like desert uh both parties are heading south that's when they run into lee marvin and his friend and lee marvin uh recognizes randolph scott they're both from uh is it silver spring silver springs yeah yeah you say you're from silver springs mr masters mostly he was born there who said you said I was young when I come there, Cleet, but I wasn't born there. How? Oh. Uh, yeah, they're both from Silver Springs. And, uh, yeah, so then uh, Lee Marvin joins the party and basically right away becomes the alpha of the party. He's an ex-criminal who, uh, as the sheriff, uh, Randolph Scott had locked up several times before, and he's also automatically coming on to Annie right away. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, kind of even uh, is hyped up by his friend he brings along, saying, you don't think I'll go over there? And he's like, I'll, I'll go do it. You know, classic, that that toxic male energy, fucking cycling against each other, causing him to, uh, you know, go too far. 
Oh, yeah. In sort of the height of Marvin's cuckoldry, Greer's wife, Annie, uh, is when he's in their, like, wagon and, like, talking about just how, like, beautiful she is and just, like, describing, like, to, like, her fucking face. Like, husband there just, like, hands between his legs, just fucking taking it. As uh, he's, like, (laughs) not only... Not only, like, calling out, like, you've got a hot wife, but, like, saying that, like, um, stride clearly. They clearly <laughs> were alone. Just, yeah. like, pointing out the chemistry there. And, oh, it's so fucking powerful. That's what's so great about it is that he's he's not even, of course, he wants to fuck her. But, like, he's pointing out, it's like, look, look at your wife in stride. Like, it, look, it looks like it's happening here right now. and then he makes his own advance later on so you have that one and then like a few scenes later they're all huddled into the wagon in the rain well not even all of them just the three just the four essential characters uh and the way that bedeker stages it the first like master shot that lasts almost half the scene is really remarkable um but Uh he is just like badgering this couple lee marvin as he's telling this like hypothetical story about a woman who looked just like mrs greer uh who he had relations with <laughs> and he's like, uh-huh. telling her this story to her face while the husband is like quivering in the corner <laughs> and then yeah. invokes randolph scott's character into the story <laughs> like it's <laughs> it's a very very tense and strange scene well, I knew me a little old gal one time, looked a whole lot like you, Mrs. Greer. She'd been married maybe five, six years. Husband, he kind of short on spine. And one day, along come this big, good-looking gent started warming up to her. That performance by Lee Marvin, I don't know, that type of character, I feel like you don't really see in Westerns much. It's like a different kind of newer style of acting compared to randolph scott and the rest of the cast Mm -hmm. and that stretch where lee marvin is traveling with scott and the couple is great because there's this weird tension the whole time because it's like everyone wants to have sex with annie basically yeah and um and maybe except her husband you know it's like um (laughs) the volcel king who who got buried the way he lived his life exactly and so like there's kind of like these weird power dynamics thing between lee marvin and randolph scott scott that's really fun mm-hmm. i mean one thing about westerns is like you want to see two alphas ram against each other you yeah. know you want to see the alphas in the in the pen in the bullpen <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah so they you know they go about their journey they find like a abandoned ranch to hang out in for a night and then they have to keep moving and you know they keep finding different oppositions and then they find uh, basically just the guys who did it are in a bar and, uh, Lee Marvin is, you know, he explains his situation of trying to basically, he's along for the ride, trying to poach the money that, uh, these criminals stole when Randolph Scott captures them. So he meets the criminals. He finds out that the wagon that they've all been in is the one actually carrying all the money. So... Uh, after a few more kind of twists and turns, the finale ends up being like in this big, just like not cave of rocks, but this giant rock formation that has some low ground in the center. That's just where the briefcase is. And there's like a big shootout of everyone 
trying to get the briefcase that ends with the two uh, lead alphas, Randolph Scott and Lee Marvin, having a duel over it. Yeah, it's pretty powerful stuff that plays out. I feel like in, I don't want to say a predictable manner, but because it's working with so many elements of the genre, you know the path it's going to go down. Yeah. But because it's so bare bones and all you have are the it's sort of the raw elements of these characters and these actors really chewing it up in such a beautiful way it makes it so beautiful because there are like i don't know in the 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 article that you were talking about it points out it compares this the Bedecker westerns to like a big western like shane and i feel like something that these smaller westerns have is that there's like a real intensity to these like low-key stakes where it's um the cuck gets a little bit of a redemption he is able to die with somewhat <laughs> of a spine yeah um but like even yeah. still it's like, so funny know, that he dies <laughs> no i, I think his death scene is great though for what you were just saying yeah. jt though because like it's some aspects of this film that you don't really need to flesh out that much, you know, like he, uh, he comes in with the, wa- with the wagon that's supposed to have all of the money, even though he gave it up to Randolph Scott. And, uh, he just like immediately walks past the gangster who gave him the job, uh, or the, you know, the, the, uh, robber who gave him the job and just like glances at the police station where like, I guess he's gonna ask for help. <laughs> which isn't gonna happen he just gets shot in the back and like the absolute you know lawlessness of this uh society that they live in is fully on display in there where the only real presence of authority is an ex-sheriff acting as a vigilante i mean that's why i urge people to buy guns and not go because to- <laughs> <laughs> you know it is people's sense of morality askew in the society and you know someone like lee marvin right it's just a yeah. complete dirtbag who yeah. just you know who just lives to you know uh you know just kind of like leech and steal poach <laughs> you know it doesn't matter he doesn't really care about any any outcome except him you know getting some money in his pocket and you know. but i like the bitterness that happens with that end uh, that ending where it's like scott doesn't get the girl like they even though she's like finally free of cuck husband uh and it's it would be clean in the eyes of it's just like they don't it it can't wrap up that neatly the morality at play here is too messy and too true to life Mm -hmm. for there to be that satisfaction like scott gets his vengeance is like a fucking he i mean potentially the truest cuck of all like giving twenty thousand dollars back to the bank yeah no exactly <laughs> that that reminded me like if they were to play out the one of the scenarios that that ambiguous ending gives you uh, of them you know becoming a couple again it's like they're just out 20 grand and he's gonna work as a deputy now <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah and you know also like lee marvin said in the love is a, a fancy word and uh <laughs> the types of randolph scott might not be so adapt to love because uh you know he he loved he loved his wife and now she's dead and it's like well you know sometimes with old people they just can never love again so it's true it's it could simple. just be that bitter of an ending i mean if you look at the other Bedecker Scott Westerns, there are some pretty bleak endings in that bunch, you know? Yeah. I mean, did the West end bleakly? I'm not, I see, I don't, this is, 
try to make a historical reference, but I don't know. I mean, look, I think every Western made in the 50s would have something to say about that, essentially. Yeah, (laughs) that's true. I'll have to watch these movies and see what they have to say. Um, yeah, no, this is a great movie. I, I'm I'm shooting it four times, four bullets for this classic western. Gotta love using the bullet rating system with uh, <laughs> you know a western, right? It feels double right. Yeah, exactly. I'm gonna give this one. I'm gonna give this one four bullets as well. I mean, Butcher, you know, when you're watching his stuff, you're watching the you know masterclass in framing, you know, in particular too. I think the way these shots are framed are you know very deliberate but you know oh, sometimes yeah. it seems effortless though too it's not you know it's nothing's too one perfect shot and i mean that the sequence towards the end you know with the the rocks and how like those strangely shaped rocks can frame the characters in the shootout is you know it's really impressive to see oh my god yeah the the staging within those weird rock formations and the angles that he uses on top of that is like next level yeah yeah real intelligent stuff what do you think, JT? Um, yeah, I'm also uh, given this uh, four bullets. I would say Bedeker is up there with some of like the classic Western masters, like Ford and Mann. He just like his entire run with Scott shows just how effective uh, the genre can be. And like I feel like to relate it to something contemporary that always irks me is um, the whole. I don't know, in terms of popular art, uh, Westerns being compared to the superhero movie. And I mean, <laughs> I feel like we all, I don't know, see that as a, as a fairly like trite comparison. But just the way that, like, I mean, not necessarily like popular, because these are B movies, but like popular art at large, like things like that that aren't even like calling attention to themselves as, as art pieces are so much more real and present like a nuanced look at reality in such a more interesting and compelling way that I, I don't know, the comparison really doesn't water. Um, but this is a, a true blue classic. <laughs> yeah. Don't make that comparison. It's a bad <laughs> comparison. It doesn't even really work on a surface level. Right. Cause it's like they made so many Western. Yeah. They were pumping them out. And with these superhero movies, it's very selective releases. It's just, yeah, I don't know. Bad, bad thing to say. Don't Westerns say it. were also the most popular film and literature genre for like the first half of the 20th century. Do you really uh-huh. think comic book, like superhero comic books, are that popular in terms of like New York Times bestsellers? <laughs> well, you know, you know what? Back, they was popular back then because people spent their life heading west, reflected their lifestyle. Now, comic book movies are popular now because everyone grew up right reading comic books and being a nerd oh i thought you were uh, saying because everyone wants to be a superhero (laughs) yeah you know everyone is a superhero (laughs) i think that's like uh kumail nanjiani like his wife has a book called like you're a superhero or something like that yeah if you got out of bed today give yourself a pat on because that's not easy (laughs) Damn, we got our uh, we got our own Lin Manuel Miranda motivational speaker. <laughs> I try, man. I I try to emulate the Malcolm Miranda. <laughs> Lin Malcolm Miranda. <laughs> Fuck, that's my new nickname. <laughs> that's the new character for the podcast. Yeah. <laughs>
Um, so you could always email us at extendedclippodcast at gmail.com. Um, our one that we got this week is from Valerie F. And the topic is topical. Uh, hey, fellows. Sorry I haven't emailed in a bit. Felt the quality of my emails deteriorating and wanted to think of a good question. Well, never worry about that. Our emails, we never get good or bad emails. They're all special We're never concerned us. about quality with this show. <laughs> yeah. Quantity. <laughs> exactly. Quantity, yes. Um, Send us an email chain stuff. Get us on the email <laughs> chain with parents, if that's possible. I felt like going topical and asking about Westerns. I really haven't seen many other than the Fistful of Dollars trilogy, The Searchers, and a few others I saw with my grandpa or dad that I've forgotten the names of. What westerns would you recommend as a place to start? I hope you're all doing okay during these stressful times. Sincerely, Valerie. Well, thank you for writing, as always. Yeah, I mean, The Searchers and Rio Bravo are kind of like my 1A, 1B for westerns of all time, really. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking how I got into westerns. My Darling Clementine was kind of the one for me that made it all click. That made it all click? Yeah, that made it all click. Like yeah. the movie Click. <laughs> yeah. No, I repeated it because you cut out for a second. But Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah, I would say if you've seen The Searchers especially, just like Ford is the way to go, I guess. Like watch, yeah. you know, Stagecoach and My Darling Clementine and – um I don't know. Uh, I would say also Hawks, of course, Red River. Um, but my favorites are the ones that I said and Wagon Master. And I would say the last of those Buttaker, uh Scott ones, Ride Lonesome, is definitely among my all-time favorite westerns as well. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of directors who I want to get in, like uh, The Gunman by Phil Carlson. Oh, great nice. Great western. And I want to see more of his westerns, even yeah. though he's maybe – more known as a noir guy, but there's a lot of directors, you know, from that time era that have, you know, Westerns that maybe aren't even considered that are possibly, you know, pretty good. Yeah, no, I was going to say, I, I was, I've, I've seen some like gritty crime stuff from Phil Carlson, but I'd be interested in seeing a Western from him. Yeah. Not to, t- to, cause I love uh, the Ford Westerns and I feel like that's probably like your best bet like, starting points, but to delve into some areas, I feel like we haven't mentioned yet. Um, I think a lot of popular um, B-ish directors of the time, like the 50s, um, have a lot of standout Westerns. Like Nick Ray has uh, Johnny Guitar, The Lusty Men, are top tier. I mean, Anthony Mann, again, um, with like Winchester 73 and Oxbow Incident are some great Westerns. Oh, I love Oxbow. And then Fuller as well. Fuller has some good ones. Yeah, I shot Jesse James. Yeah, yeah. 40 uh-huh. Guns. Yeah, good, good call on Johnny Guitar. I think that's also another starting Western that can like, oh, help Oh, Johnny Guitar is a masterpiece. I still yeah. haven't seen Johnny Guitar. I need to see that one. But uh, 40 Guns by Sam Fuller, that's like the god-tier format of uh, Cinemascope black and white. Just some of the most gorgeous cinematography. Uh, and then also like you get into the revisionist stuff later and it's not as good as classic Hollywood, but there are some good ones out there. You know, Clint Eastwood's got Unforgiven, High Plains Drifter, Pale Rider. Uh, you got Dead Man, the Jarmusch, Neil Young joint. Uh, Kelly Reichardt's mm-hmm. Meek's Cutoff is an amazing film and I'm sure her new, her new Western is as well. Ride the High Country. 
McCabe and Mrs. Miller is for sure my favorite of the revisionist westerns. Classic. Ride the High Country by Peck and Paw. Honestly, I'm I'm good. I don't even need to. <laughs> just cut, just cut Ride the out. High Country is is really great though. I love. Uh, <laughs> uh, it's a great star vehicle. Uh, Scott again and Joel McRae. Uh, it's that that one is top tier as well. And yeah. Peck and Paw again, another good westerns boy. Yeah. So watch Wagon Master, <laughs> and <laughs> we'll be back next week. Uh, Malcolm, do you have a double feature for next week? Yeah, I do. Um, you know, I was kind of scrambling. You know, this was a last-minute choice, but I think I made a good one. And, you know, I, we like to be bashful sometimes. We like to say <laughs> mean things about people because it makes us feel good. Or I don't know. I don't really know what's going on. Is that what bashful means? Yeah, sure. Um, <laughs> I think so. Um, but, you know, let's show a little bit of gratitude. Let's show a little bit of respect. Let's, you know get our hand up and salute to some, some Kings. And, uh, I wanted to salute a couple Kings in general, uh, Eric Romer, hundred years. Uh, he's, he's not alive still, but, um, if he were still alive, he would be a hundred years old. So I wanted to pick the aviator's wife as the a feature. And then, uh, you know, Stuart Gordon, um, who just died recently, great horror director, made some classics like a reanimator in front of beyond. And I wanted to highlight Castle Freak, which is a personal favorite by him. And the connection there is that it's both about spying on women. So, <laughs> respect to the kings. Yeah, maybe I'll watch some De Palma in during the week to talk about in the middle to bridge that gap. Yeah, maybe a lot I'll of movies. Watch some about... women. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I'll, just, I'll just do some peeping. You know, it's so hard. They're all in in their house. You know. <laughs> You saying your bedroom window doesn't peer into your neighbors? That would be so sick. Oh, I want to. I want to. I got a peep set up. <laughs> I want to. No, I want to like fall in love with the neighbor's daughter from across the street, <laughs> and like we both have a mutual relationship. She's my. She's you know. It's not like it's not like that, but you know, it's like like that Taylor Swift music video. That's kind of what I want. But no, my, my, my bed actually faces away from my window. <laughs> I think that's so, a yeah. good note to end it on. Um, you can always reach us at uh, ExtendedClip69 on Twitter. I'm at iPod underscore video. I'm at BitchFacePalace. I'm at TallboyThinLegs. And we will see you next week. I don't suppose there's any way of getting at this box aside from going over you. I didn't figure there was.